This is The Reason Interview with Nick Gillespie. Thanks for listening. This is the audio version of a video live stream that takes place every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Reason.com and at our YouTube channel. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. More on them later in the show. The guests this week were podcaster and writer Coleman Hughes and the Cato Institute's Walter Olson. We talked about recent very high-profile Supreme Court cases that struck down the use of affirmative action in college admissions and ruled that a web designer in Colorado could not be forced to make a site for same-sex couples. Along with looking at the legal issues involved there, we discussed the immense cultural changes over the past 50 years related to questions of racial, ethnic, and sexual identities. Here is The Reason interview with Coleman Hughes and Walter Olson. Thank you, uh, Coleman, for joining Reason. My pleasure. And Wally, thanks for talking uh, to us this afternoon. We're going to talk primarily about the uh, two uh, recent Supreme Court rulings, uh, the one about affirmative action in college admissions uh, that involved the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Harvard, and also the uh, 303 Creative LLC versus Alinas uh, case that had to do about providing web services uh, for gay weddings. Uh, We'll get to both of those in a second. But first, what I want to do, and let me just see if I can find them. Okay, first, I want to talk about the legitimacy of the court, the Supreme Court as an institution. Um, Interestingly, uh, while uh, responding to questions about the uh, affirmative action ruling, uh, President Biden was asked that the uh, Congressional Black uh, Caucus said the Supreme Court, uh, by virtue of its affirmative action uh, ruling, has thrown into question its own legitimacy. President Biden was asked, is this a rogue court? And uh, the president answered, this is not a normal court. And I just want to point out, uh, also at the same time, the Supreme Court job approval, uh, this is from uh, last year at Gallup. Um, It's the most recent that I could find, but it has seen a a fairly precipitous drop over the past couple of years, uh, down to 40% of people saying that they approve it. If you go to other Gallup records, just to give a sense of this, 25% of people say they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court and that's down from 45% in 1973. Uh, Wally, if I can go to you first, uh, you know, is this a normal court? Is this a legitimate court? Are these questions we should be seriously considering? What the court did in particular in these two cases uh, was telegraphed, I would argue, 20 or 25 years ago in earlier cases. And in fact, of all the things the court has done this year, the results in these two cases were among the most predictable and would have happened uh, had there been some president other than Trump, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. They uh, they were not considered close cases by the majority and so forth. Now, is the court legitimate? Uh, you know, interesting question in which mm-hmm. you have seen 
I would argue, a number of forces attacking the court's legitimacy, including both a bunch of people on the left who combine being sore at outcomes of cases. We can all mm -hmm. go through the ones there, but with also being sore procedurally at the various confirmation battles, which you know I agree that you know, Congress has disgraced itself, or the Senate has disgraced itself at various times in its conduct, but they uh, they are sore about particular vacancies that they believe should have gone to Democratic uh, appointees. Uh, and then on the, uh, the MAGA side, we all know what Trump thinks of the legitimacy of courts, mm -hmm. which is he, he calls them so-called judges if they rule against him. He, uh, yeah. um, so, so you have, as part of the general um, polarization, you have this and other institutions um, uh, that are the subject of more demonization and delegitimization mm -hmm. campaigns. You could, we could go on all day about the pluses and minuses of that. There are libertarians who'd say, yeah, good, no yeah. confidence in government institutions. I am the other kind of classical liberal who thinks, mm -hmm. no, we're courting dangers if we undercut institutions that we may all need to rely on. Yeah. And uh, just to put the court decline from 45% people having a uh, a great deal or quite a lot of confidence and trust in, in the institution of the Supreme Court down 45% or down to 25% from 45% in 1973. Congress uh, in 1973 had a, a confidence rating of 42%. That's down to 7%. And the presidency is down from 52% in 75, which was the first year that Gallup asked down to 23%. So in a way, the court is mirroring the same kind of decline we see in the other branches of government. Coleman, what about you? What do you think? It, I mean, should we be worried about these kind of broad-based attacks on the legitimacy of the court? Is this something to be worried about? Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, the truth is Biden is attacking the legitimacy of the court because he doesn't like the particular verdicts. That's, mm -hmm. that's all there is to it. There's nothing in the Jewish jurisprudence of these decisions that calls into question the the soundness of mind of Supreme Court justices, uh, and Biden and, and you know Democrats and, and liberals in general have had no qualms with the legitimacy of the court on the voting rights uh, cases that have come out in the past month. Um, two of which have gone towards what would be characterized usually as sort of the liberal position, one in Alabama and one with uh, federal oversight uh, of of state legislatures in general. Um, so obviously this is just, you know, this is a political attack. This this should not actually be taken seriously. I think the court is legitimate and uh, and it's important from a separation of powers perspective that it continue to be seen as such. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to the ruling itself in the uh, Harvard and UNC case. Coleman, let's start with you. Um, you know, do you do you think this is a good decision? Yes, I do. I do. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've heard many people uh, on the left sort of hyperventilating and, and about the consequences of this decision for black Americans and for racism. I mean, this is uh, I mean, that's a very uninformed fear to push, I think. There's two things to say just right off the bat. One is nine states had already banned affirmative action before this ruling. And I did not recall anyone, you know, when I was applying to college in 2013 saying, hey, Coleman, you know, you're a bright black and Hispanic kid. Just make sure you don't don't apply. Don't bother applying to California or 
uh, Washington or all of the other, these other states, Michigan, because mm-hmm. it's a hellscape there for black kids. No one said that because no one even had that fear. And now there are people trying to sort of uncover all the ways in which it's been terrible, terrible to be a black Californian student for the past 25 years as a way mm-hmm. of sort of justifying that take. You have also pointed out in, uh, you have a phenomenal article uh, that you wrote at your Substack about this that is in our show notes and whatnot, but um, that we're also talking here about a very elite phenomenon. Um, Could you discuss that a little bit? And, um, you know, just what, what does that mean in the context of college admissions? Yeah. So I, I am a half black, half Hispanic elite. So when I when I make these comments, I come from a place of uh, of knowledge and love, not of denigration. But the 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 policy we call affirmative action is not a policy that has anything to do with addressing the problems of what used to be called the black underclass, the problems of black poverty, um, the, the legacy of, of of racism and 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 so forth. It's a policy that affects, according to Princeton sociologist Thomas Espenshade about 1% of black and Hispanic 18-year-olds in any given year. The other 99% uh, either don't graduate high school to begin with or graduate high school but go to colleges with with higher acceptance rates um, that don't practice affirmative action. So this, some people want to frame this as a decision about quote-unquote access to higher education. It has nothing to do with access to higher education per se. It has to do with the ease of entrance to a very select set of, of Ivy League and uh, elite schools in general, mm-hmm. which have a somewhat inflated sense of self-importance to begin with. For instance, if you look, and again, I speak as someone who went to Columbia. And, yeah. so, and Juilliard uh, as well. Yeah, <laughs> which is so. a totally different case. But if you look at the, the, the colleges attended by the for, for Fortune 500 CEOs in this country, you see very few elite colleges there. By and large, you see schools with like above sixty percent acceptance rates that wouldn't be affected by this ruling, and they also they all somehow got good educations there. So I think we have to keep in proportion what this case is really about. And can we, uh, you know, here is a slide that um, uh, this is uh, Joe Biden speaking, um, uh, saying, you know, affirmative action is so misunderstood. I want to be clear, make sure everybody is clear about what the law has been and what it has not been. Many people wrongly believe that affirmative action allows unqualified students to be admitted ahead of qualified students. This is not how college admissions work. And then um, just this is admit rates at uh, Harvard by race and ethnicity and academic decile. And uh, what this chart shows essentially is that uh, the acceptance rate for an Asian American in the top uh, academic decile. So these are extremely, you know, high-performing students uh, at Harvard had a slightly lower rate than an ac- African-American applicant in the fourth academic decile uh, or the sixth in the Hispanic. So it it's not a question of whether or not everybody is qualified or unqualified, but it does seem, you know, clear. And this certainly came out in the case against Harvard that they were diminishing the possibility of Asian Americans to get in according to the way that they would if kind of test scores and the general profile uh, was there without a racial preference. 
when you look at something like that, Coleman, you know, what, what's your response to that? You just said you're, you know, you're Hispanic and African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously have been, you know, killing it, uh, you know, but like when you look at that, you know, ha- you know, what's your response to that? First of all, people have long defended affirmative action by saying it's really just a thumb on the scale. It's used only as a tiebreaker between otherwise identical candidates. You know, I've always known that that's just a lie or just uninformed by the people who mm-hmm. say it. Uh, but it does betray a sense that even defenders the, of the policy are a little bit uncomfortable defending the reality of it. They would wish it to be more of a thumb on the scale thing, but it's not. And we've had research that's shown that for, I mean, you know, several decades, actually. Mm-hmm. Thomas Eshmanshade found it was the equivalent of 450 SAT points for an Asian student relative to a black student, mm-hmm. everything else held equal. Um, and, and, uh, and just uh, one more thing to say about that is, is um, actually, sorry, I just forgot the point I was going to make. Continue. Oh, well, that's <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah I, can, I can jump in. The, the way Biden put it was a bit of a word trick because he yes. made it hinge on uh, something that, to which there is no definition, qualified versus unqualified. You can't go and find data uh, that is assort, uh, assorted by those categories in order to sidestep the question of whether better qualified applicants were being turned away in favor of not as well qualified applicants, which is what we can get statistics on. And those decile numbers uh, were a good example of many others. So Biden makes an assertion that can't be verified uh, about an undefined concept because he'd rather yeah. not talk about all the things that we do know. I think, Walter, uh, you took that from my head because that's okay. precisely what I wanted to say. <laughs> uh, and Wally, you, you of course, are also a, uh, uh, an elite graduate, right? If I'm, I'm afraid mistaken. so, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah well, in my I, I hate to be bringing the average of you uh, bright boys down uh, here, but, you know, it, on, on another level, is it also the case, I mean, when we talk about this as an elite phenomenon, you know, are the Asian Americans who don't get to go to Harvard, even though, you know, on a, on a kind of, you know, straight dossier or, you know, application, they don't get in because, you know, Harvard has clearly capped the number of Asian Americans that they want in a given year. Do they suffer um, because they kind of they go on to, you know, success anyway, right? Well, you hear this phrase again and again, uh, oh, they'll be fine. And sometimes it's reassuring uh, by people who mean them well. Sometimes it's a defense of the policy that points out that, you know, it's not as if their lives are going to go badly. I would still say there's a reason these places are so sought after. They do offer certain advantages. Might not be that everyone benefits from those advantages, but but the advantages are there. If you want to go into certain fields, then having that extra boost of being in a world famous department uh, in whatever your major is yeah. uh, will put you a little ahead. Uh, it, it's just the way it is. You know, part of it, uh, Coleman. I when I was looking at the Harvard case, and I I've been covering this kind of brewing over the past several years, really. But part of me is reminded by, you know, the the idea that um, this pit cut blacks or African-Americans, especially against Asians. And it seems to me that's almost kind of like a dodge because the power structure isn't really like Asian-Americans versus blacks, right? It's whites. Um, I mean, is there some kind of weird power dynamic diversion going on here that's worth talking about? Well, I think, yeah, what somebody made this point 
which was that when affirmative action really first started in earnest in the early seventies, this country was by and large white people and black people. It was basically a biracial country with a, a rounding error of other immigrants. And it was a white population that was aware that uh, of the history of slavery and Jim Crow and white supremacists legal structure, right? So on a purely reparations compensation based rationale, it made a lot of sense whether or not all white people agreed. It made a lot of sense to try to compensate the uh, oppressed population at the at the expense, frankly, of the oppressor population mm -hmm. to use crude terms, right? right? As the country has become more diverse, the borders opened up after 65. And we've got an influx of immigration from, mm -hmm. um, you know, of, of quote, unquote, people of color from the Asian world, and also right. from uh, West Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it makes less and less sense to penalize those people who were not even here for the uh, the offenses of Jim Crow and slavery. Uh, to, to penalize them based on the logic of paying back black people makes increasingly no sense. And then add to that the fact that one study found 41% of black kids at elite colleges are actually first or second generation immigrants, meaning mm -hmm. their parents were not even here for Jim Crow, right? right? They're just, you're penalizing one immigrant at the expense of another immigrant for their racial identities, which, you know, up till recently, we had concluded is one of the most inherently unjust, immoral things that you can do, right? So none of it makes sense now. Yeah. If I may, let's uh, look. I want to look at this, uh, something that Joe Biden talks about, because uh, the, the ruling itself actually does say that race can play or, you know, a consideration of race may play some part in a kind of totality of, you know, when you're considering people for admissions, which is, had kind of been found in other groups. But Joe Biden says, what I propose for consideration is a new standard where colleges take into account the adversity a student has overcome when selecting among qualified applicants. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, sometimes people talk about that as a class-based affirmative action. Um, Wally, does that, you know, does that make sense to you? Or is you know, is affirmative action fundamentally about race relations? Um, and is this kind of preferential, uh, you know, admissions policy stuff just something we shouldn't be in engaging in? Well, what Biden says on the one hand is totally unexceptionable because for ages, universities have in fact taken adversity into account. They look at someone who has uh, done well in high school despite various setbacks in their family or their community. Uh, and yes, they, they award more points. So, so Biden is uncontroversially, you know, on the one hand saying, mm -hmm. uh, fine to go ahead and do these things. Once you try to quantify it or allow them to pretend that they can quantify it and use or to use discretion, the question arises, you know, are we heading off into some completely new direction in which they are just going to introduce class-based affirmative action, mm -hmm. uh, which will have its own problems because it will include its own problems of the students not doing as well if the reason they had the low SAT scores is that they just came out of the, the poor background not as well prepared. But it will also raise the question, and, and as Coleman said on in introducing this topic, we're not coming to this situation new because California, Michigan, mm -hmm. Washington, and a bunch of other states already did this. And so we know the range of reactions, which includes sometimes uh, using language like this 
uh, and meaning it, and other times using language like this and trying to smuggle in uh, the old racial preference. Yeah, uh, you know, Colbin, what happened in places like California and Michigan? Was there, you know, was there a substantial and persistent decline in? you know, the number of blacks and Hispanics who were admitted to, you know, the UC system or the Cal State system, things like that. Mm -hmm. And and if so, is that is that a problem? And I just to add, you know, so that I give you more questions than you could possibly remember, much less answer in a single bound. If that is if, you know, if it does result in lower acceptance rates or lower attendance rates among blacks and Hispanics, is it you know, it's not is it college where that kind of thing should be addressed? Uh, you know, that mm. kind of disparity. So what happened in California is that, you know, UC, as, as you know, is not a college. It's a whole set of colleges right. Yeah. Uh, as, as Cal State system. Some of those colleges, after affirmative action was banned, black and Hispanic attendance went down. At other of those colleges, it went up so that the overall change in attendance was nothing. Yeah, uh, which and, is kind of great, right? And kind of exactly what you'd expect. Yeah. And and uh, there's a paper called "Did the Sky Fall?" Uh, the consequences of Prop 209, mm-hmm. which found that the graduation rate Im- among the post affirmative action class was actually somewhat higher, yeah. presumably because people were better matched, their incoming credentials and preparedness were better matched with the schools they were they were attending. Um, one of the side effects of affirmative action has been that you are effectively sending that those black and Hispanic kids to be at the bottom of those better schools, um, which for some of them, they I think some of them will rise to the occasion and find out that they really can ho- hold a candle to right. either, all their prepared peers, but some of them can't. Yeah. There is a, a interesting in terms of uh, graduation rates, um, and you know this this goes into the mismatch theory and whatnot. Private colleges tend to have, particularly elite colleges, have extremely high four-year graduation rates. Uh, Public colleges, even really good public colleges, tend not to have as good. And that's partly because private colleges go out of their way to make sure that people graduate because the Mm -hmm. graduation rate is really important, but it's slightly different. Wally, is there... You know, a lot of the attention in this case has been given to Harvard because Harvard is Harvard and people love to talk about Harvard, even though most of us will, you know, barely be able to wave to it from, you know, a train, you know, pulling through Boston or something. Is there a meaningful distinction here between private universities and public universities? Because from a libertarian perspective, uh, you know, like libertarians are like, oh, you should be. And we'll get into this with the, uh, the next case. Liber- you know, private businesses should be able to discriminate if they yeah. want to. Yeah, the, this was something that was missing from the 200 pages or whatever of Supreme Court opinions uh, in a remarkable way. Because, again, I, like many libertarians, looked at the two cases and said, in principle, they might come out in very different ways. Uh as a citizen of a state, I want the state not to do any racial discrimination, and the Constitution says so. Does it, the Constitution does not say that about private uh, institutions. Now, legally, what the court hung its hat on is that earlier court decisions have said that uh, Title VI uh, of the Civil Rights Act uh, follows the same uh, principles as the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And so we're going to treat them as if private and public universities were under the same regime. And Justice Gorsuch's 
uh, concurrence is that the only place where the, for, first he lands one um, uh, blow on this, which is if you go back, uh, that isn't actually something the court has decided upon proper consideration. It's just something that a, a few justices have assumed, and that if you and there's no particular reason to assume that Title VI is always going to work the same way as the Equal Protection mm-hmm. Clause. The second thing is even if they're right, and even if it does, Congress could go back and revisit Title VI anytime it wanted in order to allow private affirmative action. Uh, Now, it's interesting politically whether it will or not, but if we want to allow private institutions freedom to experiment with this sort of thing that we would not allow of a state institution, all that it's going to take is uh, go to Congress, ask to change that law. Hmm. Coleman, if let me pull up... uh... Excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm being a little less than facile here. I wanted to pull up uh, slides again. Um, I want to get to, uh, yeah, here we are, a uh, slide that shows um, about half of U.S. adults disapprove of selective colleges. And, you know, you brought this up in passing, Coleman. There's something like 4,500 four-year universe, colleges and universities in the country. About 400 of them, you know, have any real admissions, you know, kind of cut. Uh, many, most, most four-year colleges accept anybody who, who applies, assuming, you know, they've graduated high school and taken the proper prerequisites. So we're talking about small number of colleges here. But half of U.S. adults disapprove of selective colleges considering race and ethnicity. Um, a third approve. It changes a little bit. Blacks are more likely to approve, but it's still under half of blacks say that should happen. Interestingly, demo- people who are Democrats identify as Democrats and lean Democrat, 54% of them approve of using race and ethnicity. You know, on a certain level, is this the Supreme Court catching up to where the country seems to be going? Well, yeah, I mean, I think either every or almost almost every time affirmative action has been put to a state referendum, including in states liberal as California, it's lost. Mm-hmm. So it, it has long been a fairly unpopular policy. Mm-hmm. Worth noting that before 2020, Pew and Gallup asked these questions in 2019. And back then, even a majority of black adults mm-hmm. said that uh, they disapprove of the use of race in college admissions. And perhaps the kind of culture of the past three years has changed that for for black Americans. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, people and, and you know what's really interesting here to me is that back in 2019, when you asked the question, do you support affirmative action? Lots of people would say yes. Majorities mm-hmm. would say yes. But if you ask the same group of people, do you support the use of race in college admissions? They'd say no. So mm-hmm. it's clear the framing of using that euphemism affirmative action which if you didn't know what it meant already no. would never tell you what it meant, lent the policy kind of an air of, of credibility that the actual substance didn't have. And, and I can say, um, as someone who was around back then, that in the early years when this was being introduced, a lot of people took the meaning of affirmative action to be things like going out uh, and, and going to more job fairs, um, you know, trying a little harder on recruitment rather than altering the standard for acceptance for a job. And, uh, and, and still people will often assume an affirmative action program might be no different than that. Uh, you know, before we move into the uh, the website case, I guess, uh, you know, Wally, you and I are old enough to remember, you know, what Coleman talked about uh, before, a country that was kind of white and black and 
you know, whiteness, whiteness is constantly under construction and it's constantly falling apart. My grandparents were all immigrants from uh, Ireland and Italy. Uh, you know, when they showed up in the 19 teens, they were not so white after World War II. They and their children were white in a way that, you know, was kind of striking. You know, Coleman, I guess my question is, do you feel as, you know, and I hate to say like as a black person and as a, a, a Hispanic American, I know that you've talked with people like John Wood Jr. and Thomas Chatterton Williams and Camille Foster and others who are also uh, black or, uh, you know, or part black. You know, the country that you seem to be living in and growing up in, and you're still under 30, but, you know, you're being told or everybody's being told that things are getting worse for minorities, for racial and ethnic minorities. That has not been your experience. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about, like, what's the mismatch and how do we get to, you know, this isn't about court cases or anything, but how do we get to a better conversation about these questions, which isn't tribal or political or ideological? Yeah, I mean, the, the source of the mismatch, in my view, comes mainly from social media and smartphone culture. Mm -hmm. Like back when I was, I don't know, say, f let's say 12 or something in like 2008, most people aren't on Facebook. Most people aren't on Twitter. Mm -hmm. People are judging the state of society by like their conversations with their neighbors and their coworkers and the local newspaper. Then what happens in 2013, 14 is say if, if something happened in, in a, in like a sleepy town in Indiana or Ferguson, Missouri or right? Ferguson, Missouri. A, yeah. And really anywhere, you know, prior to social media, that would have been reported the next day in the local newspaper where it gets, you know, the journalist talks to the police, talks to everyone, gives a fact checked kind of gate kept version of what happened. And that's, that's, that's all that happens. P post 2013, that same event is filmed by someone on their smartphone who probably films the second half of it without filming the lead up. It circulates, it gets millions of views with, within a few days out of context of any sort of fact checking or journalism. And uh, that's how people get their impression of what's going on in the country. And then it gets algorithmically boosted so that it's preferentially shown precisely to the people that would be upset most by it. Mm -hmm. And that's how the entire information landscape ch changed radically without anyone in big tech meaning to. They fundamentally changed the perceptions of people in the country. And it's it's consistent with uh, Eric Kaufman, the politi political scientist, has done research finding that black people who are on social media report experiencing much more racism in their personal lives compared to black mm -hmm. people who are off social media. Now, that's a correlation. So it doesn't necessarily imply causation. But right. it is consistent with the story that people's real sense of reality is being warped by the algorithm al algorithmically boosted content on social media and pervasiveness mm -hmm. of smartphones. I wonder if that also works. I, you know, I spend a lot of time with white people who are very much on social media and they believe the worst <laughs> of all, you know, that we're living in in a, a hellscape where mm -hmm. every subway ride you are going to be accosted by, you know, an endless uh parade of homeless people, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, or that, you know, you can't walk down a street in New York without having an African-American, you know, a young African-American man punching a, an Asian-American woman in the face. So, uh, right. you know, it, it, that's fascinating. Um, and I guess it, you know, as long as we're talking about the web or, you know, smartphones and social media, we might as well move into 
the next case, uh, 303 Creative, Limited li- Liability Corporation versus Alinas. Uh, Wally, I'm going to go to you first because, uh, among many other things, you are a gay man. Uh, this is a case that, it, uh, you know, is about a, a woman who ran a web uh, a website service um, who refused to, um, you know, who said she would refuse to make websites for gay weddings or gay married couples, um, and that she shouldn't have to, and that Colorado law, anti-discrimination law, was stifling or was compelling her to make speech she didn't believe in. You know, how, do, how does this ruling, you know, how do, how do you respond to this ruling? Is it, is it a good legal ruling? Um, is it a good social ruling? How do, how do you kind of incorporate this into your world? Well, let me res- respond to it as a legal ruling because that's uh, what I get paid to do is legal punditry. And I will say, um, first, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the program, uh, you could see this coming a long, long way away. Uh, uh, On the racial preferences at universities case, uh, we all remember uh, 20, 25 years ago, some of the justices that were in the middle and and had the deciding votes on those cases said, it's okay for now, but it's going to have to be phased out. Uh, Senator O'Connor and others said, Mm -hmm. "We, we can't go on having this 25 years from now. So that's why that one was telegraphed. In this one, not just Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is five years mm-hmm. ago, in which the court came up to and then refused to decide uh, a closely related issue. You could tell from the way the court uh, justices were writing that there was going to be a majority for uh, something like this when the speech was uh, framed up in the correct way. In other words, more clearly speech than, than cake decorating, which is a very you know, gray area kind of thing, that when a case came along in which uh, it clearly was speech, uh, that the complainant would win, I would go back to 1995 and the court's unanimous ruling in the Boston Irish Parade case. This was one where um, a gay rights Irish group wanted to march in the Boston Irish Parade. Uh, the uh, uh, Management of the parade said, "No, we are, you know, uh, staunch believers in Catholic teachings. Uh, this would be at variance with." And and the court uh, took it and ruled nine to zero, including all the big liberals, and written by Justice Souter, who was not anti-gay, that uh, they had the right to turn them away. The the one thing that is a little different that uh, needed clarification is that this applies in commercial situations as opposed mm-hmm. to the parade thing, which was a purely nonprofit uh, vol- right. volunteer type thing. And we can get to that. But I want to emphasize two other things that uh, are easy to miss about uh, the 303 creative case. One of them is it did not go to the court based on her uh, rights of free exercise of religion. They right. d- deliberately did not take the religious liberty angle and made it a free speech one. Now, that has important mm-hmm. implications. Uh, because she won on free speech rather than on religious uh, liberty, it means that everyone else in who objects to being forced to, to uh, uh, create some uh, piece of speech or song or uh, uh, whatever it is, is going to be able to rely on her case. In fact, if you want to take a um, provocative fact situation, the next time that a gay website designer wants to turn down someone who uh, wants to cite, uh, you know, honoring their confirmation in a religion that they've just changed to or whatever, uh, this law will protect that 
that secular mm-hmm. gay person uh, who says, I'm sorry, but I just can't bring myself to recite the things that you would need as part of a proper uh, site celebrating your religious conversion. So so it's not in that sense really a gay rights case. It's an everyone right. rights case. Before we continue with the Reason interview with Coleman Hughes and Walter Olson, I want to talk to you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Therapy. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're having any sort of trouble in your life, you might benefit from therapy. And I want to tell you that BetterHelp is a great service. Whether you're feeling anxious, depressed, or just like you're not the best version of yourself, BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I know it's a great service because I used it myself for the better part of two years, and it really made a difference in my life. I worked through a lot of very important stuff. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TRI today to get 10% off your first month. The TRI stands for the Reason Interview. So make sure to get a discount on your first month for being a listener to The Reason Interview. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-R-I. And now back to The Reason Interview. Does it matter that it's come out that the the customer that was kind of referenced in the brief didn't exist or apparently doesn't exist? So this was hypothetical. Does that matter at all? Uh, the shorter answer is, is is no, but let me back up a little bit because it's worth catching up on the procedural background, which especially in First Amendment cases is different from other legal controversies that reach the Supreme Court or other courts. You know, the, the general background rule is that you can't get a court ruling uh, unless you have an actual injury from the law, which means mostly that they've enforced it against you. So she wouldn't get in until mm-hmm. some Colorado agency had fined her or done whatever yeah. the penalty is. And that's how uh, it usually works. But especially for First Amendment law and also for some other constitutional rights that are considered important ones, courts have for a long time developed procedure under which you can do a so-called pre-enforcement challenge. And you can go in saying, I have a reasonable fear that the mm-hmm. law will be enforced against me. So even though I haven't sold a copy of the censored book or whatever the thing mm-hmm. is, I deserve a ruling on that. Now, in her case, she tried a number of theories. The theory that she won on in the Tenth Circuit Federal Appeals Court was not the theory that she had actually tried to do any business. It was a pure pre-enforcement challenge in which the premise was, we're going to decide this case for you uh, based on uh, the the track record of First Amendment pre-amendment ch- challenge, uh, uh, pre-enforcement challenges, whether or not you have ever tried to do business. And the Supreme Court took the case as it found it, uh, mm-hmm. said, uh, you know, it's up to us on a, a classic challenge of this type. We don't care any more than the Tenth Circuit cared whether she had any live clients. So that's the short answer as to why that whole thing is irrelevant for purposes of how the court ruled. It might possibly be relevant if they believed that someone was trying to put one over by generating false evidence. Then there could be uh, some sort of legal discipline case, but no one has put forward a plausible theory as to who did that. Okay, so uh, this is from Justice Sotomayor's dissent. Um, She said, uh, today the court for the first time in its history grants a business open 
to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. Coleman, you know, how, how do you respond to that? Like, are you, does that, is she right? Does that concern you? Or do you feel, you know, that the way Wally was talking about this actually is is the better way to view it? It seems like a category error to me because this this business presumably, you know, if if I were wanting to set up a website for my gay friend, but I was really the customer and I was paying for it for whatever reason, mm-hmm. they would have refused me just the same and, and I'm not gay, right? So mm-hmm. it seems like the logic of the case is not that it's refusing to to serve members of a protected class, but it's refusing to execute services related to speech and, and writing that uh, that it doesn't where it doesn't want to say those words and express those beliefs. I think that's the better way to conceive of this issue. And I'm, I'm curious just as a, a matter of you know for people who feel Sotomayor's position is right, how their intuitions might change if it were if it were instead a Muslim, uh, rather than a Christian, and you were asking a, a Muslim website designer to, um, you know, make a I don't know, make a website depicting the Prophet Muhammad or something. I mean, that's an mm-hmm. extreme example, but to do anything, I'm curious if if people would have the same intuition that really what's important is that we force that that website maker to uh, to to say something he or she doesn't mm-hmm. want to say, or whether the important thing is to to uh, be on the opposite side. Yeah, Wally, um, how, does, how does this case fit into questions of public accommodations? And, you know, I know, uh, Coleman, I, I, I am not uh, smearing you with the label libertarian. I know that, <laughs> you know, you are libertarian adjacent or maybe uh, moving in that direction. You have unnatural libertarian tendencies or whatever. <laughs> but, um, you know, but Wally, you are a, a self-defined libertarian. And one of the odd things about libertarians is that they'll always say, you know, racism is the most vile form of collectivism. And they believe, you know, people should be able to free, uh, you know, live freely and do whatever is consensual among adults and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and they libertarians take a, a dark view at anti-discrimination laws and public accommodation laws that say, if you open your business to the public, you've got to serve everybody. Does this case fundamentally challenge or engage that kind of issue? Well, it brushes past it. And I'll say by way of background that exactly half the states currently have public accommodation laws in which sexual orientation or gender identity Mm -hmm. are one of the protected categories. So by that definition, half of America was already a hellscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, go along with your term uh, for gay people, or else, or else you may not notice it, because in fact, in those yeah. other twenty-five states, it's very hard to find any actual instances <laughs> in which, mm-hmm. other than with wedding services and a couple of very narrowly defined controversies, very difficult to find any difference in in treatment. Libertarians, you're right, you're absolutely right, uh, have a. I think justified suspicion of the attempt to use public accommodation laws to override 
the uh, independent judgment of businesses of how to serve. And I say brushed against it because both the majority and the minority in the 303 creative case did turn to history. There were questions uh, um, which may shed light on whether public accommodation laws were a fairly rare and exceptional thing or were something that were completely accepted even in the grand old libertarian classical liberal period. Uh, It was certainly accepted that some business like uh, inns to stay the night in a country where you might freeze to death if they wouldn't take you in were under a public accommodation obligation. We we do know that about Mm -hmm. Anglo-American history and some others uh, closely related in the hospitality business. What about someone who would fix your shoes? What about someone who uh, would bake you a cake? Well, the majority brushes by a theory that if you look at old instances where classical liberal societies accepted the public accommodation idea, the idea that businesses un- undertook a particular accommodation, that it, uh, aside from the hospitality on the road cases, they were very often monopoly cases. If you're going to give a company a monopoly over something, you darn well are going to give them an obligation to serve every single customer. Um, and then the dissent by Sotomayor said, oh, no, no, no. By the time she was done talking about it, you would really would think that every single person who ever offered any services or products was under a public accommodations obligation, which I think is not actually true no. if you go back to the, to, to the old law books. So, so they both found it worth engaging, and yet on one level, it uh, what they said does not change uh, the sweep of these laws. It mm-hmm. does leave me the opportunity to say as a libertarian that the stakes of social division go down if you don't define every single florist and and calligrapher as a public accommodation. If you take a reasonable view that you know some things are big and public enough, like theaters, that there is some sort of public stigma in not being allowed. Uh, but if you try to extend it to every little uh, one-person mm-hmm. business, you are going to have more social division. You just are. Can I ask, Wally, as, as a gay man who I believe is married, correct? Uh, well, Steve have- thinks so. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, maybe married in multiple states. I don't know. You know, it's like, uh, uh, but you know, how, when you read about somebody who is like, you know what, like, I'll make you a website, but like, I'll be damned if I'm going to, you know, write, you know, uh, you know, here's our gift registry for a wedding, or I'll, you can buy a cake I baked, but I'll be damned if I'm going to write, you know, best wishes, you know. Except, I mean, like, how, how, you know, how do you respond to that on an individual level? Well, I, there's a great line from uh, uh, Zora Neale Hurston up about uh, being discriminated against. I can't imagine, she said, why people would want to deprive themselves of the delight of my company. Now, that is a, <laughs> that is a confident person's uh, response to being discriminated right. against. Obviously, she lived in bad circumstances in the South, and she knew perfectly well that there was more and worse to be had from discrimination. But I love the attitude, because especially when the discrimination is just symbolic and is not not actually causing you to uh, not be able to get the the job or the home or whatever. Mm -hmm. You just brush it off as people who haven't learned what they need to know about the world. Uh, It's, uh, and and here we get to the series of cases involving Masterpiece Cake Shop and Mm -hmm. the Flowers case and now the website case, which is, uh, it's very hard to find any of those cases in which uh, gay people getting married uh, or these date back to the point where you couldn't get married and it was just uh, solemnizing a, a relationship.
relationship. Very hard to find any of these instances in which the people didn't have lots of other good choices of people who would gladly have mm-hmm. served their business. And so again, it gets me thinking about Zora Neale Hurston. Oh, are you just trying to sue yeah. in order to make a point? Yeah, uh, Zora Neale Hurston is uh, somebody who we can all do, we can all benefit from, uh, you know, thinking about a lot more and looking at her life, uh, certainly her literary output. But but there's a real sense of tragedy there. And Coleman, I know that you're familiar with Zora Neale Hurston, who, mm-hmm. you know, was uh, also a uh, Columbia student uh, back in the day and studied with Franz Boas in the anthropology department and suffered real massive indignities. Is that... Uh, you know, uh, on the account of both her gender and her race. But I mean, is it that we are in a stage now and it's always, you know, uh, it, you know, we're always declaring victory way too soon in all kinds of wars. Right. But like, is it the world that she lived in and that level of anger and hate and contempt for sexual minorities, for racial minorities, for ethnic minorities? Is that mostly behind us? And is that something that we need to incorporate into our contemporary discussions of things. It's interesting. I'm of two minds on this. On the one hand, I think we have made massive progress in uh, people's attitudes towards minorities, racial minorities, sexual minorities, etc. On the other hand, I don't think that these bigotries will ever be gone fully mm-hmm. and permanently. I think um, I, I, I think human nature has a, a bigoted element to it that is reducible but not eradicable. Mm-hmm. And at some level, we're, we're going to be living with some amount of racism, some amount of homophobia until the end of time. And we should, while combating it, we should understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wally, uh, can I ask from, uh, you know, and again, this is going back into the, uh, you know, kind of libertarian subculture, people like Milton Friedman talked about this, as well as a wide variety of other people whose motivations may not have been as clear or as pure, I think, as Friedman's. But, um, you know, there is an argument, and I guess Gary Becker also made this another Nobel Prize winning economist saying, you know, that businesses that discriminate in a stupid and foolish way or, in, in a, you know, will actually be punished by markets operating. Um, so, you know, that that 303 creative, you know, probably uh, isn't that good a website anyway, or, or will lose enough business. Uh, you know, that uh, companies that refuse to hire women or blacks or, you know, Latinos who were good workers, um, you know, end up paying more higher wages for shittier workers and things like that. Is it more than theoretical to say that, you know, markets, relatively free markets actually punish discriminatory behavior? It's a big topic, Nick. And I can offer particular examples that back up uh, Milton Friedman's suggestions. Uh, It's well known, I think, that in the South during Jim Crow, uh, railroads and others who needed a lot of skilled labor uh, were uh, constantly seeing if they could undermine uh, Jim Crow because it was denying them access to a lot of workers who would have done very well. And the it gets complicated because, uh, as Coleman said, sometimes you've got a background of uh, real uh, social prejudice in uh, that has not been eradicated. And markets can sometimes transmit that in that if bigoted right. customers won't visit your restaurant or whatever. Um, so I don't want to make sweeping assertions. I think that courts by and large, decide and should decide the cases on other bases. Where these things come in, again, is every one of those state and local 
anti-discrimination in public accommodations laws was passed um, through a legislative process in which people could weigh some of these things. And I mm -hmm. urge people, again, as someone who, not, not just from my libertarian standpoint, but as someone who doesn't want to see social divisiveness, you know, that's the time to go in and say, uh, are you legislating just to demonstrate your virtue or is there really some social uh, problem that is solved by extending it from old style public accommodations to every single little one person operation? Uh, but you would agree that public accommodation laws, which do restrict the right of businesses to operate however they see fit, are actually beneficial in certain cases? Or well, I... I I would say from a libertarian standpoint, um, I'd, I follow, I think this is the Richard Epstein analysis. I'd mm -hmm. like to uh, uh, confine them to the cases where there is a practical monopoly. Uh, ironically, uh, inns to stay for the night, which were effectively a practical, if not a, a royally granted monopoly mm. centuries ago it, you know with airbnb uh it, it you know not not at all but you know i don't mind for utilities and i can see at least their point of uh, if someone is going to freeze to death of saying mm -hmm. uh, the inn is um uh, freighted with a special public interest but i would make it as um i would make it a demanding test that wouldn't result in very many public accommodations laws uh, I want to uh, go to uh, a slide. We were um, talking about this in the context of affirmative action. And let me just see if U.S. support for gay marriage on, on a certain level. And this is pretty stunning. In 1996, Gallup started asking this question. 27% of Americans thought that uh, same-sex couples should uh, be recognized by the law as valid with the same rights as traditional marriages. It's now at 71%. You know, I guess I'll start with you, Wally. What you know, what do you think accounts for that pretty straight line, you know, massive uh, increase in acceptance of, of same-sex marriage? Well, it it is the great social revolution, the great successful social revolution of the last generation. And if I had a one-sentence explanation of why it happened, uh, I'd write a book uh, and sell mm -hmm. a million copies. I think the uh, in that particular instance. Uh, when people uh, got to meet their neighbors, uh, by and large, they realized that uh, this was something that was uh, not only good for the people involved, good for the moms and dads who could see their kids get married, who thought they would never have grandchildren, uh, and also good for the wider society in many ways. Uh, it is judged by its outcomes, and its outcomes have been overwhelmingly uh, beneficial. Um, some polls recently showed a drop, and uh, there's a, a lot of discussion of whether the public is um, uh, having second thoughts about the whole area because of more recent controversies we haven't talked about having to do with, uh, you know, transgender mm -hmm. uh, teens on sports teams or whatever the thing may be. Um, that's for another show, I think. But in yeah. this case, the uh, I think that Gorsuch, as so often, comes closest to the libertarian center of uh, the court in that he uh, handed down the huge victory for gay rights a couple of years ago uh, and, and then came right around and clearly as part of what he sees to be the proper settlement of these things says this is not going to affect conscience rights. People who uh, want to live as dissenters from the consensus and lead a more um, faith-based life, if that's such an awkward phrase, right. is uh, they will retain all the freedoms they always have. 
Yeah, uh, Coleman, uh, you know, and equally and actually even more uh, simultaneously more disturbing, but also more triumphant uh, a chart is one of people who find uh, interracial couples moral, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Gallup and other polls. When I remember uh, this came up a lot during Barack Obama's presidency, when he was born in the very early 60s, it was you know, just a few percent or something in Amer- uh, of Americans who believe that interracial marriage was moral. Uh, you know, now it's in the 80s or 90s. Um, you know, how, uh, what do you think? What do you think drives acceptance of once unthinkable kind of marriage scenarios? That's a good question. I mean, one. So, I mean, it, it helps to be on the more logical side of the argument, I think, <laughs> right? Like there was the, the, the case against interracial marriage and, and gay marriage just never, never made sense in, in a secular context, at least because, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the, as the jokes always used to go in the two thousands, no one is forcing you to get gay married, right? No right. one is forcing you to get interracial marriage. Like, but you, just you, you knowing know it's, it's happening, happening is ruining is my marriage. Yeah. Right. You know, right. Whatever. It's like. When um, when Newt Gingrich, you know, railed against it, and it was like while racking up lives, it was ridiculous. There's that, but and, and in the gay marriage case, there's obviously the long term secularization of the country in general. Mm-hmm. It's just it's very hard to get someone to an anti gay position if they were never Christian or raised with faith. It's it's it, it's tough to it'd be tough to just argue a kid into that position um, without the background of Christianity. So as Christianity declines, I think that's that's got to have something to do with it. Now on yeah. on the interracial side, I think uh, the civil rights movement was a, a major uh, a major transformation in the psyche of many Americans, and obviously that the trend took really fifty years to go from single digit approval to single digit disapproval. Right. Uh, but you know, I I think. I'd like to think that that just represents people making the argument, people seeing interracial couples in movies, on TV, seeing it as, as, uh, there's like a snowballing normalcy where the more normal it becomes, the more people think it's normal. And then the more people, the more normal it becomes, right? So that the people doing it don't have to be like really the, uh, the most, the bravest members of society can just be like your average Joe. Uh, uh, How old are you, Coleman? 27. Damn it. You know, it's like, yeah, you're peaking too soon, man. I got to tell you that right now. Take a couple of years off. But, you know, uh, again, different than Wally and me who, you know, roamed with we had pet dinosaurs and stuff like that. But where where has individualism gone? And I realize, you know, that's a, a strange thing to bring up in these cases. But in a way, it isn't. You know, they're but they're about class based, you know, ethnic or or gender or rather sexual orientation. But, you know, they're. They're about lumps of people that are being perceived one way or the other. And, you know, I was raised to believe, and it's not like uniquely, there was a rhetoric of individualism in America Mm -hmm. that seemed to be important. And, you know, it's kind of gone missing, maybe in some way or not. But I'm curious, like, do you, you know, is individualism alive and well with your cohort or in your psyche? You know, and I think of people like Zora Neale Hurston, I think of people, Mm -hmm. certainly Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, a number of other, uh, you know, particular black writers or writers on race talked a lot about individualism. And that part mm-hmm. of the problem with racism is that it you couldn't be an individual. You were mm-hmm. constantly representing this, you know, grand abstraction that could lead to you either being exalted 
or being lynched. Um, mm -hmm. You know, where, where what's the status of individualism kind of in your cosmos right now? It's, I mean, I would say it's alive and well, but it's become something quite different. It's become a more, you know, inward looking, somewhat narcissistic kind of individualism where it's mm -hmm. obviously cliche to point out, but, you know, the, the culture of Gen Z uh, navel gazing about what is my unique identity, right? And it's mm -hmm. not based on something that I've done. It's based on, you know, like, what do I really think my gender identity is like it, I, last month I thought it was this, but I'm evolving and it's this and let's have a long kind of inward looking conversation about who I am. Um, which, which really makes little reference to like what I do and what I care about, but is, is in some way more of like a, a style and an aesthetic. And I used to like to dress like this, but now I dress like this. And what does that say about how I'm changing? Like this is the kind of, and everyone must be a kind of miracle of, of self-invention on the aesthetic front and and the rest. And I, I definitely saw a lot of that kind of individualism when, when I was in right. school, for instance, a few years ago. It's a very different kind, but it does strike me as a kind of individualism in the sense that it's like, I have to stand apart. I have to invent myself from scratch as an, as an, as an identity. And I have to be different from everyone and I have to dress different. And, and so in, in a way, it's still very alive. It's just transmutated, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Wally, uh, as a uh, take us out uh, with uh, and answer this question, um, you know, the Supreme Court's, you know, positive approval ratings have dipped, uh, you know, as I was saying, 25 uh, percent. Of people, according to Gallup, have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in it. It's down from 45% uh, in 1973, which is what, 50 years ago? Um, you know, uh, and it's, it's in lockstep with other declines. But is there anything that the Supreme Court can do going forward to kind of restore its sense, of, you know, restore confidence in, in that it is working through these things in the way that it's supposed to, as opposed to in kind of cheap political ways? Big question. And part of it is how well they explain themselves. Part of it is uh, when justices dissent, whether they do so in language that undercuts the legitimacy of the majority uh, or vice versa. And uh, part of it is a uh, process that you certainly can see if you look up close at the cases that the court takes and how they decide them, which is that although they are not swayed by public opinion to do things they wouldn't do affirmatively, they will sometimes duck cases and rule narrowly for fear of being demonized again by some of mm. the same groups that are just waiting to demonize them. I find that unhealthy. I will say, um, looking back over the last few years, the uh, courts have been one of the few institutions, the federal courts in particular, that actually have done what they needed to during a potential constitutional crisis. You know, they were the ones who turned down all the frivolous election suits. And I worry that um, uh, sniping at them for short-term gain over various issues that uh, they decide means that the public support will not be there when they need to make a per perhaps unpopular decision uh, upholding mm. uh, the, the right side in an election dispute. All right, we're going to leave it there. We uh, have been talking with Walter Olson of the Cato Institute. Look him up there and Coleman Hughes of Conversations with Coleman and at Coleman Hughes, is it ColemanHughes.com? Dot org. Or, yeah. Dot org. Yeah. You are a nonprofit. Uh, yeah. 
Okay, fair enough. No, but uh, thank you guys so much for walking through and talking through these cases. Uh, fantastic. We will see you next Thursday at 1 p.m. This has been The Reason Interview with Nick Gillespie. Before you do anything else, please go to Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts and sign up, subscribe. We're putting out two episodes a week. Don't miss a single one. You can also go to reason.com slash podcasts and sign up there. And while you're at reason.com slash podcasts, why don't you check out the Reason Roundtable and the Soho Forum Debates, our two other regular podcast series. If you like the Reason Interview, you're going to love the Reason Roundtable and the Soho Forum Debates. They're all at reason.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>